Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. This is why Philip's positioning is right. We essentially believe in an international contemporary art marketplace, and we believe that most tastes converge. <laughs> That's Philip's CEO, Ed Dolman talking about his auction house's view of the future of the art market. In this podcast, Dolman talks about the rise of contemporary art, the Phillips brand, the changing auction calendar, and what that convergence of taste means for the future of Phillips. I wanted to start by talking about um, where Phillips is at, uh, particularly because we seem to come uh, towards the end of a fairly long cycle of your arrival. Maybe this mm -hmm. is the end of the beginning and the beginning of the middle. But to set that up, I wanted to just go back and sort of reconfirm my understanding of uh, the last sort of 10 or 15 years. Absolutely. You know, my, my memory is that the modern Phillips was created uh, right around the year 2000, maybe 98, 99, uh, as an attempt to sort of build a third auction house. Uh, and at that time, it very much had a strategy of the auction world who had accumulated all these various uh, departments mm -hmm. and um, uh, businesses that would be cyclical and sometimes they'd do well, sometimes they'd uh, you know, have trouble carrying mm -hmm. themselves, and that uh, a great strategy would be to focus on the high value uh, sections. Mm. And that, that approach got turned more into chasing after the contemporary art mar market in part because of the leadership. And you know there was an opening in the art world then of creating new artists and their uh, uh, markets. And then about, is it five years ago or longer that uh, Mercury bought uh, Phillips? 2008. Right. So, what's that? That's nine years. Nine years. After 2008, the, uh, there was a, a period where it was run under the old ma management, and about three years ago, you joined. Uh, correct. It's about I joined in July um, 2014. So nearly three years now. And you've had uh, three years to really reconceive, yeah. uh, repopulate, yeah. uh, really think about your, your strategy, yeah. which is all very sort of long wind up to say, say uh, if this is the beginning of the middle, tell me a bit about um, Phillips and its approach to the art market uh, in 2017. Well, I think um, if I can just go back to the early um, remodeling of Phillips that was attempted by um, Bernard Arno working with Simon de Puri and Daniela Luxemburg 17 years ago now. Um, I think they firmly believed there was an opportunity for a third auction house to um, become part of the discussions that clients were having about selling their works at auction. It wasn't just Christie's, it was Sotheby's, there might be somebody else. Um, and I think the antitrust um, inquiry and the difficulties that Christie's and Sotheby's found themselves in at that time, um, plus frankly Bernard Arnault's you know, obvious antagonism towards Francois Pinault, uh, led to this sort of this grand plan being hatched. And I actually think uh, 
and being on the other side at Christie's at that time, looking at it, that, you know, it had some legs. This idea had some legs. You know, a lot of people might have thought it was impossible to break into this duopoly that had existed for hundreds of years, but, you know, it looked interesting um, at that time. I mean, we watched it quite carefully. Um, and the problem was, I think the timing was wrong. I think the idea was probably right, but the timing was wrong because, uh, you know, the art market was a lot smaller at that time. And most of the turnover at the auction houses was created from um, a finite pool of masterpieces, whether it was impressionist and modern art or 18th century furniture. Um, it was a relatively small supply chain. Um, and Christie's and Sotheby's had it pretty well wrapped up. And so for a third player to come in and seize part of those traditional markets was quite difficult. Uh, but since then, uh, and this is why I think it's very different now, and why I think we are at, we are now at the beginning of a new phase, um, is this contemporary art phenomenon, which has resulted in a mass of supply. You know, this is not anything like the business in 2000. Um, and so suddenly, in my opinion, um, the opportunity for a third auction house, especially one focused on 20th and 21st century contemporary, you know, lifestyle, uh, there's a real opportunity here because we are not fighting uh, over a relatively small and finite pool of objects. Uh, there are literally sort of tens of thousands of works being produced now uh, on an annual basis that can supply and feed not just three auction houses, but a number of auction houses. So you mentioned earlier uh, Arnaud and Pinot, and the auction business has always been dominated by uh, outsized personalities uh, with grand ambitions, Al Taubman maybe being the predecessor uh, to those two. And um, uh, certainly, there's an attraction to uh, that business. Your company is a little different from Sotheby's and Christie's in that Sotheby's is a public company. Christie's is a division, but of a much larger company with a large balance sheet. You're sort of betwixt and between. And given that um, financing uh, in the form of either uh, short-term guarantees or arranging third-party guarantees has become fairly uh, integral to the business, at least you know, mm -hmm. as it uh, uh, works right, right now. Um, how does that uh, work for you? Is that a constraint, or is that something you just need to manage and keep your powder dry in how you apply the guarantees? I mean, is, I guess what I'm, uh, I'm mm. really asking is, what are the pluses and minuses of being not part of a conglomerate and not uh, public? No, I mean, I think, um, I think the issues that the auction business faces um, and absolutely something that Philips faces is that uh, the scale of our businesses and the size of our balance sheets make it extremely difficult for us to take um, really significant um, risk positions and have enough capital um, to deal in you know what is effectively a multi-billion dollar market. 
and when individual works of art are now making 150, 200 billion dollars, um, you know, to be to be a real active sort of financier um, within that marketplace for those works has been a challenge for some time now for the auction houses, not just the auction houses, the dealers as well. So, you know, certainly I think for the last 10 years and certainly since the financial crisis of 2008, all the auction houses have been pretty active in trying to find financing partners, partners to take risk. Um, the phenomenon of the third party guarantee, you know, has grown out of that because you know, the, the, you just don't have the balance sheet power to stretch it across, you know, a billion dollar week of sales. You know, it just, it, it just doesn't work like that. And so, and, and Philips is very much part of that. And we, we do, um, we use our own capital as uh, wisely as we possibly can. Um, you know, we, we don't have the same scale of, as, as Sotheby's and Christie's, but I'm not worried about that because, in fact, I think we're focused on specific parts of the market. So we try and use our money as well as possible. And we work with, with partners when we see fit and the opportunity arises. I think actually one of the interesting things about the third-party guarantee phenomenon, it, it, it may be driven by the financial crisis initially and the unwillingness of the uh, auction houses to be caught in that position, that brutal position they were in, mm. um, uh, November of 2008 with a lot of guarantees yeah. and really no buyers. But if you look back, especially at what we can see from, say, Sotheby's er earnings, when direct guarantees worked best was when the auction house had better market knowledge than, say, the sellers, the consigners the, themselves, because you could offer what seemed like a, a great deal as a guarantee, knowing that there was more demand out there. That can't last forever. It's a short window in time where even you know the, mm. the superior information in an auction house is going to not be available to the dealers, the collectors uh, themselves. And I suspect, you know, what we've seen with the use of guarantees would have happened without a financial crisis, just because we were to reach some sort of equilibrium uh, over the time. Yeah. But. But it also would seem it, it kind of, again, works towards your advantage since so much of this is now about arranging, um, you know, uh, a, a backstop financing, finding a buyer who mm. is willing to, to also uh, be a funder uh, who would be happy to own the, uh, the work. Mm. It now seems to be an important part of how you get a sale both together and getting uh, a momentum. Do, do you, when you are now engaged in these uh, competitions, do you feel like you're losing out because of the finance or just because you, you know that there are places where you need to sort of say, we can't compete here uh, versus you know, choosing your particular uh, bodies of work or artists? I mean, I think the... Um, I'm not sure whether this answers the question directly, but. Our strategy has been all about creating um, a place for Philips at the table when major contemporary art world deals are being discussed, you know, by lawyers or by collectors or, or um, by anyone who's looking to sort of to, to transact in the contemporary art market. Um, to, to a great extent, um, we've achieved that over the last three years. 
and uh, but once you're at the table, it then really does become a fist fight uh, about who has got the greater belief in the work of art, who values it most highly, who knows a potential buyer that the others might know, who knows a potential financing partner that the others might know. And uh, you know, I think all the auction houses have got pretty sophisticated now in trying to put all these de different pieces together to try and make a compelling proposition to the seller you know, in the competitive environment that we work in. Uh, and I think at the end of the day, um, frankly, it's wonderful for consigners, you know, because uh, the market is competitive and we, and I think actually, frankly, we've got pretty good now at uh, putting together very compelling financial packages to consigners. Um, but at the same time, it does you know, increase, you know, much as we try and decrease the risk by finding partners, it, the, the risk is ramped up because in order to win the business, you're competing against you know, more sophisticated uh, competitors. And who's doing the competing? Uh, are your um, deals, for lack of a better term, both uh, finding a, a, a buyer, yeah. collector buyer, as well as finding yeah. a financing par partner, are those managed by the same person, meaning the specialist? Is it sort of a tag team operation between a, a specialist and, say, a business getter or someone who handles the financing? I, I, I sort of want to get into mm. the whole personnel issue because that seems to be, at least yeah. in the last uh, year, a big part of your uh, yeah. uh, story. Yeah. But, but before we get there, I just want to get a sense of how the role of a specialist in this kind of finance slash art world uh, uh, takes place these days? I think it's, it remains absolutely fundamental to the whole process. And, um, you know, the, the, uh, a good specialist today not only requires the expertise needed to be able to assess the work of art in terms of authenticity, importance, um, where it fits into a particular artist's oeuvre, is it important, is it less important? All these sort of fundamental sort of building blocks of getting to evaluation that's the right one is key. But I think the, the almost a more important role now for a good specialist is really in-depth market knowledge of what's going on out there and who is buying and who is selling. And. Uh, you know, I think the valuation of an object, um, you can be much more confident in, in a specialist's valuation if you know that they know who's going to buy it. You know, it's as simple as that. And so I think, um, so the specialist role is absolutely fundamental to this. Now, how a deal actually then gets put together around that, obviously the larger the scale of the deal, the more complex it becomes. And so you do have a group of people working um, to try and make sure that the, that the financial sort of support that goes to that specialist in winning that deal is as, um, is as well thought out and, uh, and as complete and as sophisticated as possible. And so there is a sort of team aspect here. And with the growth of third-party guarantees, that who is going to buy it question is also now a who's willing to provide the third-party guarantee, who's in a position to potentially buy it, but also happy to make a little money uh, if they uh, correct. don't. Yeah, correct. And are those people the same group of potential buyers, or is that sort of a next extra subset? I mean, is, is there the 
when you're looking at especially the big works, are you still looking at the same group of people or has that expanded into a larger pool? I'm, I'm trying to get at this idea of what, what the top of the art market yeah. looks like these days. Yeah. I mean, I think there are, um, you know, invest in uh, groups who are looking at opportunities in the art market um, in coldly investment, in a, with, with investment decisions to make, you know, so they don't particularly want the picture but they like the idea of the deal and they assess all the risks themselves and decide that's something that they would like to be involved in. Um, I still don't think those people are, are, are less than we might think because it is an inherently very risky um, business. Um, so I think, that, I think the broader pool is still the, um, the buyer who actually would be interested in owning the picture and wants the picture. And I think the interesting thing about that is that if you've done your work well and you've found the most likely buyer for a work of art who then backs it with an irrevocable bid, you know, you're, you know you've almost got a final sale there before it goes to the market. So I think that's why quite often you see an irrevocable bid being the winning bid at auction because actually the auction house in a way has done its job, you know, has found the most likely buyer, has got the right bid, you know, and you know, whatever they've tried has not been able to find another buyer to compete against that guy. Having said that, you know, there are obviously with new, new buyers coming to the market, Chinese buyers, etc. you know, there's obviously the opportunity to find new people, but I think the phenomenon of seeing irrevocable bids win works of art at auction is because you know, the most likely final buyer has already been identified. Talk about um, focusing on particular parts of the, the market. Uh, Cheyenne Westfall is uh, about to start, uh, I think. Yeah, uh, next week, actually. And uh, B.T. Hyden has just, just started. Uh, started yeah. uh, uh, um, you've had a couple of other people over the last two or three years yeah. uh, uh, show up. Where do you think that puts you within 20th century and 21st century art. Are there specific categories? There are regions that you're focusing on? Uh, you know, how, how do you sort of block out the world to say this is where uh, we think we can do that? Well, I mean, I think the, um, I mean, the future for us and, you know, any strategic growth plan that we have is around, um, increasing our reach and expertise essentially in 20th century markets. So, you know, if I'm asked, you know, what's next for Philips, because you're already in contemporary art, you know, are you going to start selling furniture or something like that? And I say, well, no, what's next for us is a real focus on the burgeoning African contemporary art market or the Indian contemporary art market or the Chinese, you know, to really build out teams and specific, specific sales in those regions, still focusing on contemporary art, because I think the growth there is, the growth potential there is absolutely huge. Um, and I'm saying this because in answer to your question, um, and relating back to the role of the specialist in the, the current marketplace, um, what Cheyenne and Meaty and Robert Manley and Vivian Pfeiffer um, and Ugeoff um, and many others have brought to the table 
are their own client relationships in the particular areas of the 20th century and contemporary art markets that they've been focusing on over the years. And so they have their own sort of microcosm of uh, experience in the broader contemporary art market. Um, and so we are now in a position at Philips now to utilize, you know, Cheyenne's 25 years of experience in the contemporary art market in Europe. Um, we are now able to, to look at Vivian Pfeiffer's extraordinary experience, for instance, in, uh, in the Latin American area and as the Miami representative uh, of Christie's for many years. She has a whole raft of clients and, and specific experience. So, you know, we, um, yeah, it's the people that sort of drive this and their particular experience and expertise is driving this. But our broader um, corporate strategy is to grow and touch as many areas of the contemporary, global contemporary art market as we can. But, uh, you know, I look at uh, uh, Cheyenne's role in the zero group artists and uh, you know, German art uh, yeah. in, in, in general and seeing how much that has increased in importance. Artists that uh, really didn't have much focus uh, 10, 15 years ago uh, are now more broadly known. There have been big museum shows. The markets for them have mm. gotten uh, much bigger. And the markets are less regional. We, we see much more, you know, the most extreme example is Richter, where you, know, you sell a Richter abstract, it could be going anywhere in the world. Yep. Um, and it, it seems to me being able to look at those and identify the next group of artists or thing that will be easy to cultivate to convince the owners that it's much more valuable the object than they ever th thought and excite buyers about them and uh, do that arbitrage between mm. Korea and uh, South America uh, to find those you know, works that may actually uh, excite people. As mm. we've seen with the, um, the interest in uh, the Japanese Gutai uh, painters yeah. or the Manaha, yeah. uh, you know, all of this, especially around abstract art, seems to be creating this sort of global culture, but you guys are actually the vector in between all of this, yeah. and it requires people on the on the ground. I mean, you're you're also expanding into Asia. You've had yeah. uh, at least one cycle of sales in Hong Kong. Correct. Yeah. This is why Philip's positioning is right. I mean, we we essentially believe in an international contemporary art marketplace, and we believe that most taste. Um, most tastes you know, converge <laughs> at some point. And we're definitely seeing that in um, Hong Kong right now, in the Chinese market right now, because the, uh, the appetite now from Asia for important masterpieces from the 19th and 20th century of Western art is extraordinary. And uh, a lot of the very high prices we've seen paid in recent times has been paid by Chinese collectors. Um, so having watched the market evolve through the sort of first seven or eight years of this century in China, focused very regionally on fabulous Chinese works of art, which are getting huge prices at auction, um, and Chinese contemporary art, um, we've now seen that, that group of collectors 
uh, evolving into sort of true international art market players who are developing museums and galleries of their own and collections of their own. And they are now looking for exactly the same pieces as uh, the great American collectors are, the great European collectors are, etc. Um, and I happen to believe that, uh, you know, this rise of interest in German contemporary art of the second half of the 20th century is real because of the quality and the, the rarity and the, um, the importance now of, of those particular artists. And I think there is a generational change happening now in Germany where a lot of the great collections that we're putting down into art will be coming to the market and I'm absolutely certain that we will see huge worldwide interest in those great collections when they come up for sale. So I'm very glad Shane is on board with us right now. Yeah. And, and how do you um, do the client-facing uh, part of, of Asia? You, do you have business getters and, and, and client people in uh, either mainland China, Hong Kong, Singapore? Yes, I mean, we've built out the team uh, in a pretty traditional auction way. We've got representatives in um, South Korea, Taiwan, China, and we've got a group of business getters um, based out of Hong Kong. Um, the support at the moment are jewellery, watch, and contemporary art sales. Uh, and, you know, I think it's sort of inevitable that it's going to grow. I mean, that, that market is, is potentially the largest growth opportunity for the art market right now. And I don't think it's, an, it's by mistake that, uh, that I think Sotheby's largest shareholder is now um, a Chinese corporation. Um, they obviously share you know, an understanding of where the art market is going that I think a lot of people would agree with. Yeah, that was one of the most interesting turns uh, uh, last year, to see both um, Taikang identify uh, Sotheby's as uh, a, a valuable partner for them investment, uh, and to see the value that Sotheby's could bring back on the other side, not just Sotheby's getting access, but um, the whole Chinese market needing the level of um, assurance and stability that a you know the mm. oldest uh, company uh, listed uh, on the stock market can bring to it, in part because so much of the uh, dealing in these kinds of objects uh, involves having someone you can go back to when there's a mm. problem, someone you know uh, yeah. will be there uh, from you know the, the, the uh, fake old masters uh, 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 painting yeah. potential to you know, bringing your watch back uh, when you yeah, want to correct. resell it uh, in a few years because maybe you want another one or you've got too yeah. many uh, at that point. Um, which actually reminds me, you brought up the, the watches and, and I don't think it's nearly enough mentioned in your story is you have, if not the biggest, certainly one of the best watch businesses uh, going. Talk a little bit about Oral Box and then Talk to me about what that means strategically for, for Philips. Yeah. Um, I mean, we were very lucky to have an opportunity to, um, to get Aurel into our team 
um, a couple of years ago. I mean, I'd, I'd obviously worked closely with him for a long time. And in fact, ironically, um, I'd poached him from Phillips when I was at Christie's. So yeah, although I didn't poach him this time, he left Christie's uh, of his own volition. I was there gratefully to uh, receive him with open arms when, uh, when he decided to, to come and effectively partner with us in building a new watch department uh, for Phillips. And his, his success has been extraordinary. I mean, the, uh, the Philips watch sales now lead the market. And from zero to market leading against uh, Christie's and Sotheby's in such a short period is an extraordinary achievement. But Aurel Bax is an extraordinary person. And uh, I don't really know of any other expert that, you know, is, is so powerful in this field um, as Aurel. The, I, would, I would take a guess that I've forgotten his name, but the young man from Heritage who developed the vintage um, uh, handbag market yeah. so effectively and then moved to Christie's in, yeah. in Hong Kong is the only other sort of person I can think so closely identified with the, the market yeah. that he, he run. Quite possibly. Um, and I think, but I think what was interesting for me about it was um, it answered quite a lot of questions for me about the Philips brand, you know, how, you know, how much potential does a brand name like Philips have against Christie's and Sotheby's who've been in existence at such a high level for so long. And I think, frankly, what, what um, Aurel proves is that actually if you've got the right team and the right people, the Philips brand stretches very comfortably um, into a market leading position. Uh, and I'm not saying by any means that overnight Philips will become a major player against Christie's and Sotheby's in some of these key categories, but it isn't the brand that's going to stop us, you know. And so I think, you know, we, if we continue focused on making the right decisions and employing the right people um, and all the associated marketing and financial aspects of our business, I, I think we're going to have success just as, as Aurel has proved. No, it, it seems very clear that um, the, the playing field has gotten so efficient that someone who is particularly good uh, doesn't necessarily need to be in uh, a, a place that has that uh, authority uh, uh, and history that, you know, if you're good at it and you can immediately establish yourself fairly quickly, yeah. if you find the right uh, group of objects to be uh, an expert in. And and I often think, you know, we, we so many people fixate on this idea that, you know, the art market's going to move online. Uh, and it, it, it's a particular hobby horse of mine that it seems to me that's a, a totally misdirection in where the business is going. It's almost the other way that it's um, finding new categories of objects that are going to gain value. We've seen yeah. this in the classic car market where a whole new set of types of cars in part because of age and the people who mm. now have the money to spend on it. But the, the watches is a good example. It's not like there hasn't been a vintage watch market. But the, yeah. these markets grow as more people uh, become involved in, in them. 
and there are more collectible markets uh, uh, out there. And I, there's probably more likely to find some class of collectible object that will gain value than it is to find uh, 30 new artists that will have yeah. broad uh, uh, markets uh, and all. And so I, I guess building on the success that you've had in, in watches, is that something you're looking to find? I, obviously, there, there are not a lot of oral boxes in the no. world, but uh, uh, other sort of departments that you can build up. Well, I mean, I think jewelry remains probably the largest single opportunity for us. Um, our parent company, the Mercury Group, uh, are probably the largest retailer of jewelry in Russia. And so, you know, we, we have a huge built-in advantage, really, in that na the nature of our ownership. And, um, you know, one of my <coughs> immediate plans is to is to really start concentrating on filling out that area for Philips. Um, the, the, the jewelry market, I think, is going through quite a lot of challenges at the moment um, related to changes in taste and you know, collecting habits among young, rich people who don't necessarily want to be seen covered in massive diamonds when they go out in the evening anymore. So that, and that has definitely had an impact on... Um, the growth that's in that market, but it's still a very, very good area to be is, in. Is that what's driven the interest in these, um, what they call signed uh, uh, jewelry, you know, the, the vintage pieces, the, the, the tutti-frutti bracelets yeah. and those sorts of things, because they are smaller objects, they're less obviously large stones and, you know, set with many other stones around them? Yeah. I mean, I think they're, they're little works of 20th century art, you know, the, uh, the sign Cartier brooches from the 30s are you know wonderful things and have a value completely disconnected from the the, the sort of the the value of the stones that are set within that brooch um, and i think you only have to look at the success of jar and other jewelers who have who um have created a, a market totally disconnected from the value of the stones themselves just because the the objects are so beautiful and, and, and rare works of art. And I think that's where it's going. I think people feel much more comfortable wearing jewellery as art rather than jewellery as huge diamonds showing you know, glamour and wealth. So is that the emphasis for you, much more to be uh, involved in selling um, the, the signed pieces than trying to find a, a, a 25 carat you know, pink uh, diamond to sell? Yeah, I mean, they, you know, we're still very much in the early days of building out our, our jewellery. But yes, I mean, I think that's obviously going to be our focus. And, um, you know, it, it's a bit like selling a very expensive picture, selling a very large stone. The margins are tiny and the risks are quite high. So, um, you know, you've got, to, you've got to approach that with some trepidation. And uh, so I think, I, I, you know, I'd love to see us build out very interesting, contemporary-feeling jewellery sales with, with fabulous design pieces within it and quite contemporary design pieces within it. Because I think that sort of fits in with us and our brand and gives us an opportunity to do something slightly differently from our main competitors. And that leads to sort of the final thing I just wanted to ask you about. Um, you mentioned jewelry, which takes place in New York, London, Geneva, and a bit in Hong Kong. Uh, the you know contemporary art world is primarily New York and London, with a little bit 
uh, in Hong Kong, and we've got a bit of a an odd calendar in the art, uh, or at least the auction world, yeah. um, built around uh, you know seasonality that doesn't really apply anymore. There seems to be you know first we had uh, the sales in New York condensing into one week rather than uh, yeah. uh, two. We've seen additions of various other sales. How do you view that? It, it, you're, you're obviously, because you're a smaller house, less in a position to drive, you know, this is how we want the yeah. sales to go. But in your sort of perfect world, would you stick with the calendar that we have now? Would it move in a different way? How, how would you like to see uh, the sort of global calendar work? Um, I mean, I, I think I would like to see much more even spacing. And I think that's inevitably where you're going to go. And you mentioned, you know, it's a little bit in Hong Kong now when you were describing those. In fact, it's a lot in Hong Kong now. And uh, some of the jewellery sales in Hong Kong, you know, are a match for Geneva and are certainly larger than the New York sales. So the jewellery market already has got a big shift out there. Um, you know, the and it, it's in the jewellery market's in Geneva because traditionally that's where the, where the jewellery dealers are or just that's traditionally where they were held? Uh, no, I think it's where... You know, it's the sort of big daddy of the jewellery trade, and uh, and I think that's where people feel most comfortable shopping for jewellery. I'm used to it. It's sort of it's habit forming to go and get great things. You know, fly to Geneva and go to the auctions. Um, you know, people have said for years, why can't Los Angeles be an incredibly important art hub? You know, because actually, if you look at it, the wealth there is is equal to most states around the world, and there are more art collectors there than almost anywhere else. But it's been almost impossible to grow that market um, because people from an A buy their art in New York and London, you know, I mean, and they don't want to buy their art in LA. That's they easy. enjoy the excuse to go to New York. Yeah, London that's right. And, and you know, it's where you go. And if you want to buy your suits, you go to Savile Row in London. If you want to buy shoes, you go to Florence or whatever it is. The jewellery, you go to Geneva. And I think that's probably the one compelling thing that keeps the sales there. Um, and it is a very distinct marketplace. There are no other major auctions that take place. It's all jewellery and watches in Geneva. Um, uh, the tradition is there, and I think it'll continue to be to, to be so. But I do think we're going to see further rationalisation of the auction calendar to make gathering periods more sensible for the auction houses. You know, June has always been a problem, you know, because the, the gathering period internationally gets shorter and shorter for London. Um, you know, the, the New York sales have been pushed back later into May. Um, so, you know, to, to fill your sale in New York in May and then still fill feel your sale in, in June. And now you have sales in Hong Kong that is taking place at late May at the same time. You know, it's... Uh, and with all the clients sort of becoming, merging into one mass, you know, you're talking to the same people all the time. So I, I think we're inevitably going to see a little bit more shifting in the sales calendars. And I'd certainly support it. But as you say, you know, it's... Um, we're, as a small player here, we're not in a position to start moving these things around, but I think it's sort of inevitable that we'll see some change. No, it certainly looks like uh, as the sort of caravan turns into a, a, a unified group, having essentially six sets of sales uh, isn't the end yeah. of the world. They just have to be 
regulated so that everyone yeah. can get their work done. No, uh, exactly, and managed by the people in the auction business. Yeah. Ed, thank you so much for taking the time. Mary, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com 